0: morning, church. My name's Sean. I'm here to deliver our awesome word today. Romans chapter 2. This is a long one, so hold on to your seats. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but as though that those who obey the law will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on our hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced. That you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children. Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you not commit adultery? You who are idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have written code, you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well done. Well done, man. That's a long passage to read. But let's begin. <laughs> We've got a big task ahead of us. Uh, Romans chapter 2 Is a big chapter. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached on Romans uh, in the midweek evening services that they had in London when that was a thing, not London, the midweek evening services, Um, (laughs) preached on Romans for 15 years. For 15 years, once a week, he taught through Romans, and he never finished. He died before he finished so we're going to do chapter 2 in 30 minutes and we'll be done that'll be easy so let's pray God help us Father we do come we bring your word and we come under your word today we don't come uh, with some kind of superior arrogance sophistication bias that we bring to somehow judge your word we ask that you come and speak to us that you judge us that you come as you say, that your word comes between bone and marrow, that it is, it is what we need for sustenance and life. And so today as we look at your word, would you do that in our hearts, we pray. Amen. The church in some senses uh, is reaping, or at least the Western church, is reaping the fruit of a long history of hypocrisy. We've lived in a way where we proclaim that we have good news, but that often rarely seems like good news to the hearers. At least, not to all people, but to some who hold privileged positions for whom the game of Christianity works. In a large way, we've carefully crafted for ourselves the cisterns that really never satisfies the prophet says, and we sit with a form of religion that has very little power. We go to church, we do our liturgies, we have our practices, we memorize the verses, and all those things are good and amazing, but they can even get in, in the way of us experience the freedom of faith. And F.F. F. Bruce, a commentator, writes about this particular encounter that is now famous, you would have heard it, I'm sure, of Thomas Aquinas sitting with Pope Innocent II, being invited to speak to him, and the Pope saying, no longer do we need to say that silver and gold, we have none. And he showed him the wealth of the Vatican. And Aquinas said, also, no longer can we say, pick up your mat and walk to the lame. One theologian says this Jesus started a remarkable, radical, revolutionary movement. It went to Rome and it became an institution, it went to Greece, it became a philosophy, it went to Europe it became a culture and it went to America and it became a business. And we take what Jesus has brought and, and sin and our brokenness in our hearts turns it into systems and structures that we have to obey and live by, by which we somehow find life because we feel like life is within those structures and like a marriage that that can't produce children, we go through all the motions, but it doesn't necessarily bear the fruit that we long for it to bear, that our hearts yearn for it to bear. Or if it does bear fruit, the fruit looks remarkably like the kingdom of this world rather than the kingdom of God. And so Paul is writing this book of Romans to fight for the purity of what Jesus began. He is giving it his all. It is, as you saw in the last two weeks, just a remarkable, remarkable work of what Jesus came to do and fighting for it to stay true to that. And so as we, as we look at chapter 2, we're going to have to look at it from the big picture and not get into the specifics of chapter 2 because there's a lot. We're going to do an overview, but it's going to be through the lens of the premise and the theme that Paul is bringing, which is found in chapter 1, which you looked at. 1 verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith, And so what Paul is fighting for is not just the essence of the gospel, not just the essence of Jesus' work, but he's saying that the power, the impact, the influence that the gospel, that the church, that Christianity is supposed to have, that the power for that lies only in the gospel and in nothing else. Else. I am not ashamed of the good news of Jesus, the gospel, because that is the power by which we can live, by which we can live the hope that Jesus called us to, by which we can live in the city that he's called us to. Now, I don't know uh, if you're married or single or where, how you find yourself in the city and why you find yourself here, but if you're breathing, you'll find that life is hard, if you're married you'll find that being married is hard. And if you're if you're single or unmarried and you're trying to make sense of life and sexuality and, and all of these things it you'll find it's hard too. And you'll I think stand with me today if i say the answers the cheap answers that were given so flippantly to just quote as if they will fix everything, or the answers that our world is trying to give us just never seem to deeply satisfy us in the way where we can make sense of the pain and the struggle and the reality of the world we're in. And we long for the power of God at work in the details of of our lives. And so Paul makes two points through this chapter, and he basically makes these two points throughout the book of Romans. Here they are, and we'll look at them. One, our, he points to our inescapable state of existence, that we are completely helpless. He wants that to be so clear, and throughout his books, he keeps pointing at that. We're not only helpless, but everything that we try to do to help ourselves actually gets us into greater trouble. He's not only saying, hey, look, you can't do this by yourself. He's saying everything you do is going to make it worse. Your best efforts will paralyze you. And then the second one, our inescapable hope is the kindness of God. Now, if we look at the chapter... um, in kind of a holistic way, we see he's speaking specifically uh, to Jews but also to Gentiles. And this was the great divide. These were the two kind of partisan sides of arguments when it came to faith and, and, uh, and the people he was busy trying to, to reach and speak to and help. And we see three things that he addresses um, as an example of a powerless religion that he's trying to help us. Even today, worth. And the three things is the first part of the chapter shows that uh, people believed that they were saved because they were Jewish. They had this like inborn thing that no matter how much you try to explain it to them, if they were Jewish, they assumed that they were fine. The second was, I am saved because of the law, because I work to obey the law. Not just am I Jewish, but the law was given to us, and because the system was given to us, I'm trusting the system of living that can save me, that can rescue me, that can help me live a life of power and impact and real real joy. The, The third is, I am saved because I am circumcised or I have circumcision as a sign that is given to me. And in any given moment, I can point to that sign and say, it's okay, I'm fine. I don't have to worry about it. And he is systematically, this is what Paul does, he systematically debunks and undoes the structures of the lives of his hearers upon which they rest to make them think that they are okay. Our world that the world that I live in or that I see, I think does exactly the opposite. Our world is systematically trying to feed us stories, ideas, and thoughts that tell us we are okay. If you do this, if you do that, if you buy this, you'll be fine. And so we get these promises from from every corner of our city that says, if You get into that place, or if if you're able to buy your apartment, if you get that job, if you buy this hair product, it'll be fine. Our colleges keep telling us how we are okay. In fact, it's really, really hard in our day and age to point to the sinful nature of human being without taking a lot of flack for that, and how we should believe in human beings, and believe they're good, and our... Our construct, a beautiful thing that God's doing is the the reimagining of us being made in His image. Is being taught from the pulpits. I teach that, which is amazing. And if we believe that alone, we'll forget that there's also the fall that completely distorted the image of God in us. And if you just look at the streets and the headlines, you'll see the results of that. In fact, you don't have to go that far. You can just look at your marriage or your life and see the pain and the heartache that we all are a part of causing. And so he does this. He says, I'm going to use you, my hearers, the the Jews and the Gentiles, as an example. And he says that sin firstly introduces a prejudice to how we listen to Scripture and how we understand the Gospel. He's speaking to the Jews and he says... As I look at these three things that you do to bolster your belief that you're okay, I want to undo this systematically. And I want to show you that sin makes you think that you're okay because when you go to scripture and when you listen to sermons, you listen for what you're looking for and you take that, but you don't take the whole counsel of the Word of God. And he's bringing quite a stern rebuke to them because he's saying you're selective in what you're choosing. Now there's a picture, I grew up with these things in my home, I don't know if you did. And if you have them in your home, don't, just be, that's okay, that's fine. These are called, oh you can't even see them very well, because you've got inferior projection. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> um, it says bread of life, and those are called promise boxes. You don't have to you turn the lights off, it'll be fine. Promise boxes. The the idea of promise boxes is that you could go daily and just pick something out of it and go, what is it that I need to hear today? And you could pick that and you could apply it to your life. There we go. It's happening. Oh. You can even pick your color. It was high tech back then. Just leave them off. It's better if you don't see me that clearly. I, I, I agree with that. Um, now, I think a, a memory verse or a, a verse or a promise of God is is worth meditating on and 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 I'm not want to bag it all but our theological process is uh, uh, is that that we go to scripture and we choose what we want to read and we don't we don't we don't let the Spirit of God skewer us to the polystyrene to come under the judgment of the Word of God. And we come to Sundays, and we, we've created a, a world of, of recipients of entertainment who are really good. I'm talking about myself, who are really good at critiquing the worship, the liturgy, the sermons, And we forget that when we come together, we, all of us, me included, come under the word of God for it to judge us, not for us to judge it. And then we think of these words that have become kind of taboo in our culture, like obedience, And we forget that obedience is only hard if you don't trust that the person you're obeying is good. That it's hard to obey if you think you've got a better picture of what the good life looks like. If you have bought into the narrative of our world that says it looks like this, or your life should be like that, or you should be like that, I have friends who have sought partners to get married to all their life, and they got to a point where they just, they realized they might never get married. And the question that Paul's addressing in those hard moments of life is, is the good news good for everyone? Because if it's not good for every person, those who who can't get married, those who can, those who will never be wealthy, those who are wealthy, if the good news is not good news for all, it is not good news at all. And Paul is fighting to break down the prejudices by which we come to his word that holds the words of life, Jesus, that shows Jesus page after page, and he's saying, don't do not Just pick and choose the parts that you want to listen to. But let Jesus meet you around every corner. Let him hunt you down and wrestle you to the ground. That's the best place for you. And it's a hard message. It's the message that that had Jesus come to a point where he says, Oh, everybody's leaving me. And he speaks to his disciples and he says, Are you going to leave as well? And they go, Where else would we go for you have the words of life? Now clearly it wasn't easy words because people left him because they weren't hearing what they wanted to hear. So when we see the progression from what Jesus started, which was pretty remarkably unsuccessful at first sight. I mean Jesus Jesus had the crowds following him and he kept going, I'm going to choose against the career choice. And I'm going to go to obscure place and preach to more people. And and he kept doing these things that didn't make sense. And yet we come to our church in our day and we run it like a business. And we think, oh, if we do this and this and this and this, we'll grow the church. We'll have more people. We have finances. We have these things that really matter to us in our world. And we ask ourselves, are we becoming a church with no power? So he says, when we approach Scripture with prejudice, we are robbing the gospel of its power because we're choosing only some parts. And we're quick to point at those parts. And we create moral hierarchies where it, it suits us, where it works for us. We pick only what we like. In fact, We should, when we're listening to sermons, when we come to church week after week, which is why it's really important to be part of one local church, because you could do the same thing by just going from church to church, picking what you like when you like it, but being being bound to the flawed community of God, under which you sit and go through the journey of life together for however long you happen to be in the same place, is a powerful experience. It's very unsexy. And unsensational. And we read scriptures to confirm our own theories. And so we deal with prejudice. And we come on Sundays, there's, there's something that I can say, I guess, here, I hope, because I'm leaving, <laughs> um, that, that is basically this. It's, if if you don't come Sunday after Sunday and, and there's at least a little bit of squirming in your seat when the Word is being preached, it's probably not the healthiest place to be. Now, that's not an excuse for pastors to be harsh or harmful. It's just if the Word comes, it offends the places of us that do not align with the kingdom of God. It has to. That's what it does when it comes as a scalpel. The second thing that happens is that sin introduces privilege, a privileged place from which we look at other people. And we see here in this text, we see the Jews starting to go, yeah, 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 we have the law, they don't. We have a place of privilege. And they, they lived in that place. They thought they were exempt or somehow uh, further along just purely because of their own status, their, their, their Jewishness. And Paul addresses that heartily, He says, do you think you're different? No, the the, the things that you're judging you yourself, just because you have the law and you're circumcised, you have to obey that if you want to live by the law. You want to claim law? Okay, you have to come under that law. And he reminds them that the tyranny by which they judge other people is going to be judging them. Now, what I have found in America, I haven't been here very long, I've been here for about seven years, what I have found in America, and, and this is home for me, I feel uh, as, as much as I can, I feel like this is home for me. New York, not America. Um, is that we, we, we're we very, very good at creating villains out of other people. We're extremely good at, at siding And what, whatever that, the cause is, whatever the point of departure is, We're phenomenal, and so we look at our political system, and in the name of Jesus and in the name of God, instead of just speaking truth in love and grace, we actually speak the truth as we believe it in the name of Jesus and create greater harm. And it goes both ways. This is not a red thing or a blue thing. or It's just not that. It's the fact that our hearts tries as hard as we can, we try to put ourselves in a superior position. And Paul has a remedy for that, which we'll get to quickly, which we should get to quickly. Let's get there. And I'm uh, going to... Let me tell you the story. All these things that we try to, to build upon which... Upon which we base our lives is is p- prejudice and privilege and presumption was the third one. It's the one it's like we presume certain things from scripture and we don't allow it to get to us. But I wanna I want to move on quickly. When uh, in November last year, I got a, a, a strange text, one of those that you, you hope you never get. It's from my sister in South Africa. I've got two sisters. And the, the text said, Have you spoken to mom? question mark. And I was like, "Oh, this could be great, or it could be disastrous. <laughs> I don't know which one." <laughs> and what we found out, what what had come to being, is uh, my my uh, my other sister uh, um, has been on a long journey of self harm and and substance abuse and, and everything you can imagine. And she had, uh, over time, alienated herself and her son. We we had fostered for a long time, and and the family took care of him, and it's, it's, it's a long story. It's a story of grace. It's a story of redemption. It's amazing. But the news we got that day was that somebody reached out to my, sister, my, my other sister and said, Look, your sister's dying. Your other sister's dying. And if you want to see her for a last time, you should come now. Great, where are you? Oh, we're in a jail in South Africa. And she's in this jail. And the doctor said... If she's got a week to three weeks, that's it. And you go, okay, she's tried, she, she's, she's tried to avoid us and with everything for, for 12 years. We'd hardly spoken to her, really hardly. I, once I spoke to her in 12 years. And you're faced with this reality of her life catching up with her, the brokenness that we feel because have we done enough to reach out and seek God for her? So I go to South Africa, and uh, basically two days later I fly out, and, and our community in Chelsea just said, hey, we feel like you need to go, we want to pay for your ticket to go, get on the plane, fly over there, have some of the most redemptive time. Now, now if you've been to Africa uh, in any capacity, uh, I hope you didn't end up in jail. If you did, I'm sure you could tell amazing stories about that, and that, that, that the, the grace of God is even there but but it is not the place that you want to be i'm smiling cuz it's my coping mechanism <laughs> it's a tough place to see and not having seen my sister for for, for 12 years i walk in and and you go through this experience that i can't even begin to describe in the time that i have but i we go in and we see God do incredible miracles and there's amazing story of redemption etc cetera, etc cetera. I wish I could tell you that story right now. But the point I want to get to is, in a week, God does incredible things. Now I need to get home. So a day before I'm supposed to fly back, I start getting my stuff ready. And I text Lisa, my wife here, and uh, she, she stayed here. I said, I can't find my green card. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I need a green card to get back to the States. They, they let you go out of the States without a green card, but you can't come back in. And I've got digital copies, and, and that's not going to work. That's not going to work. So I start looking, and I can't find it. I spend my last day in South Africa driving from place to place to place to place, just trying to find my green card. Start phoning the airline. It's like, can I bring a digital copy? Can I print it? And... I'm looking for every corner. I was like, I'm gonna print it, laminate it, and hope they just go, "Yeah, it's fine." If I can just land in America, I know they won't think it's. They will know it's fake. Then I can just go. Well, I'm here. My family's here. Can we sort it out? I got, I got faith in America. They go, oh, "We're not letting you on the plane. Sorry, you can't do that." So I start panicking. I go back to the jail. My sister's already out of jail, and I arrive there. And these people who God has done—literally, the, the, the uh, wardens. God's done amazing things. I stand there with them, and they're like, "You're back." I'm like, "Yeah." Uh, I'm looking for this little card. It's green. <laughs> it's actually green. And they're like, "Hi, how, how? I don't, I don't know, don't know." And they haven't found it, and they couldn't help me, and I'm stuck. And I phone the embassy. And they still treat me not like a citizen because I'm not. So they go, okay, 600 bucks and a six-week wait, and you'll have a green card. And I'm like, I can't wait six weeks. And I don't have 600 bucks. So I'm like, oh, what's going on? So I phoned Lisa. I said, babe, I've lost it. I've lost my green card. She's like, ah, oh, how, where? And we trace the steps. She tries her best. So I I start driving again, uh, still looking for the green card, and I get a phone call from her, and she goes, Hey, babe, it's in your drawer here at home. Here it is. So I said, No, it's not. I brought it. I'm sure I brought it. She's like, I'm holding it in my hand. It's here. Then she says, very graciously, of course, Remember before you got on the flight? And I said, Have you got your green card? (laughs) So now we're stuck. I got to fly the next day. So we know like, I don't know what to do. So, so she does an incredible act of kindness. This is her own personal help. She, she first goes to FedEx. How quickly can you get it there? Oh, okay, three days. It's going to cost us to change the flights. We don't want to pay for the flights. Look at every option. And she goes, oh, okay. I'm going to go to JFK. I'm going to stand in a line and look for a random stranger that looks trustworthy who's flying to Cape Town, and I'm going to ask them if they would take your green card. I'm going to take one of my kids with me, so it just gets a little bit of empathy. (laughs) So she takes one of our kids with her to the airport. Now, literally, that is her personal hell, to go to a stranger and ask for help. She's so self-sufficient. It's incredible. She doesn't even want help from me, never mind from a stranger. So here she goes, and she goes, and she sees this man. She walks up to him, and she says, Sir, i got a strange thing to ask you. What about this? And she literally throws her and myself at the mercy of a man who's traveling to Cape Town. And he goes, as everybody should, with great suspicion. <laughs> What's going on here, man? This is, this is a bit much. She explains it. She says, here's his number. You can text him. Uh, He can pay you something on that side. When you get there, we'd have to ship it there. We would have cost us money. He'd gladly give it to you. You know his response? He said, I need to declare this when I go through. Is that okay with you? She's like, absolutely. Just declare it. I don't know what they're going to do, but declare it. See what they say. And then he goes this. He says, why would I ask you for money? I'm going anyway. And if he could just meet me at the airport, I'll gladly do this. And in a moment... (laughs) All of my plans that had completely failed and Lisa's plans that were insufficient (laughs) and my future and being able to get back for Thanksgiving, I landed on Thanksgiving morning back in America, hinged upon the kindness of a stranger. (laughs) That's it. There was nothing that should have had him do it and he wouldn't even take our money for it because he was coming anyway. It was a beautiful older Jewish man who was on a tour of Africa and he's like, I can do this. And he was a hero for a moment. The point is this. We, we fight so hard to create constructs by which we can get what we need. We fight so hard whether it's the law, whether it's our own righteousness, whether it's the ways in which we seek joy and happiness. And we forget that Paul is saying, you have no idea how bad you are. And that every effort that you're doing is wasting your time and making it worse. You might get arrested for this. You need to rest purely and solely upon the kindness of God. And so he makes this point when he goes uh, further in 1 Timothy. He's writing to, to Timothy, and I'll, I'll, I'll end with this text. He's writing to Timothy, and he's saying this. He's saying, he says, this saying is... Now remember, he's writing to his son. This is a letter of affection. This is not a theological treatise. This is him going... I want to I give you my heart. I want to give you who I am as a son in the faith. He writes and he says, this is a trustworthy saying. Whenever he says that, he's going to summarize the gospel. He's going to summarize that which he believes. He says it five times in all of his letters. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying. And he had just gone through all the sins. He had just said the, the sexual immorality, the greed, the murderers. The, he's just pointed out all of the sins that we have to fight against, that the law, the law is against. And then he says this, As a summary, all of that, all of the sins, all of these things that harm and break down, all of the ways of this world, here's a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, the worst. Now, church, I think we've reversed that. I think we've done what the Jews have done, that Paul is trying to address in Romans, where we go... We have the law, we know what moral is, we know what good is, we know that we're, we're in a good place over here, so what we're going to do from our safety here in the kingdom is we're going to point our finger as much as we can to everything out there that's not the kingdom of God. We're going to make placards and posters and we're going to protest and we're going to call people names and tell them they should burn in hell and we're going to moralize our situation because we're okay. And Paul, not just by the letter to the Romans in chapter 2, but also by his very personal example says, here I am, we've spoken about murderers and the sexually immoral, and we've but I want you to know, I'm not standing here pointing at them as if they're bad. I want you to know, I am the worst. And he says this at the end, that mirrors uh, Romans 2, he says, I received mercy for this reason. There's a reason for the mercy that is poured out. That in me as the worst of the sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as, as an example. That word example is a blueprint. Literally, it's architect's drawing. As an architect's drawing for those who are going to believe in him because they've seen his goodness. And here's the argument Paul is making in Romans, and here's the argument that he's making. Romans 2.29, right at the end he says this. Uh, a Jew is a Jew inwardly because it's circumcision of the heart. So it's not, it's not external, sorry. 2.24 says this. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's saying that if you rely on your constructs, on your goodness, on your ability to, to carve for yourself a moral life in New York City... The result of that is those outside of the church is going to look at the church and they're going to blaspheme the name of God because they're going to see hypocrites. They're going to see those who point fingers at others but never themselves c- confess to the brokenness that they are. And then he says in, in Timothy, he says, the glory and the power of the gospel that is at work in my marriage, in my family, is the fact that I am the worst of sinners and I need the love and kindness of God. That's our only hope. So, to end off with this from my story going to Africa, as you can imagine, my kids ask, Dad, what's going on? You're going to Africa like within 24 hours? Why, how, what? We, when, when Lincoln was three, I, I've told it here before, but when Lincoln was three, I said to him, boy, I love you, one night, saying goodnight, I said, boy, I love you, you know that, right? I don't know why I asked him that, I just said, you know that, right? He said, yes, dad, but could you tell me every day so that I don't forget? Wisdom from a three-year-old. Yes, every day, okay. So we've got this game that I play most nights, or many nights, where I go into their room and I say, what's the most important thing you must never, ever, ever, ever forget? I ask them that question. They get three chances to answer it. They use the first two chances to mess around. So they go, oh, the most important thing is that I'm awesome at soccer. Oh, yeah, okay, great, great. That's not it. And then I tickle them, and they love it. And then the next one, what's the most important thing you must never forget? And then they say uh, that a bird pooped on your head. That one always comes up because they love that moment. And then I go, no, forget about that. And I say the last one, what's the most important thing you must ever forget, never forget? And they go, that you love me and that you'll never stop loving me. Now, they know this. That's just part of the rhythm. That's the answers they give. That's what they've got drilled into them, whether they believe it or not. So they ask me, what's going on, Dad? So I said, my sister, who they know about, don't know the full story, they do now. My sister is in dire need in Africa. She's busy dying. I need to go. And they go, why? And we had to explain all the hardness of life for them to understand at least a little bit of her story. And they said, but why do you have to go? So I said, because she needs to hear that we love her and that God loves her and that he will never stop. He needs to hear what you hear every single night. That her worth and her value and who she is is not, is not changed by the fact that she's dying in jail. It is purely based on the kindness and the goodness of God because of who He is. And if there's anything that I was praying for you this morning, it's just, God, would you bring a freedom that there is no need to prove ourselves? Would there be a freedom that brings power back into the church that we literally here all think, yes. Not that person, not the guy on my left, not my wife here sitting next to me. I am the worst of sinners. And I am the recipient of the mercy and the kindness of God. And that is my only hope. And that is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. And that we can be a church in the city who lives that truth that Paul is fighting for. Faith, faith justified by faith. That truth would be the burning thing that gives this, per, this church its mission. Not doing great work so that the city can see that we're good. No, just the kindness and the mercy of God. And because He poured out His kindness and His, his mercy, we would love to be kind As he is kind. We would love to be generous as he is generous. So I'm gonna pray for us. The musicians are gonna come up and we're just gonna we're gonna come to the table, literally just celebrating the kindness of God. So for a moment, I'm gonna I'm gonna pray and I'm just gonna ask you to be quiet and, and reflect on where you have seen the kindness and mercy of God and whether you even believe that you are the worst of sinners needing his mercy, or if you somehow think, No, I'm okay. I think I'm okay. And the irony of this text that Paul writes to Timothy, says, I am the worst of sinners, and Jesus came to save me. The very, next, uh, the very next verse says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I, maybe this is a little bit of a critique of me and of our world and of our churches. It's like, if we understand the depth of our condition... The hopelessness of our condition, if we really understand that, and if we really understand the fullness of His kindness and mercy, we would, very similar to Paul, almost not be able to stop the worship that flows from us. Paul's not writing to Timothy going, let me write him a psalm that sounds amazing, He's literally just saying how good God has been to him and he bursts into song in his letter. He's literally just, oh, God is so incredible to him, be the glory forever and ever because he knows his condition is completely hopeless and he knows the kindness of God is completely sufficient. Father, we stand before you this morning. We come to you and throw ourselves at your mercy and for us, our hearts that still wake up day after day kind of thinking we're okay, we forget that even Paul said, I am. Not even, It's the present continuous tense. My condition is utterly hopeless. And where that is not a reality, by your spirit, would you come and speak that into our hearts? Remind us of how, how feeble our efforts are. And then come and remind us of the vastness of your mercy and your grace that you pour out upon us. Day after day, your mercies are new. They are not just new as in fresh, but they are sufficient. Sufficient for this day. Sufficient for the trouble that I face. Sufficient for the heartache. God, your kindness knows no bounds. May we be a church that can display the power of the good news of Jesus. Fully to our world. And that it is absolutely obvious that it is your goodness, your fame, your deeds that is at work through your people. I pray for your power, God, to come upon your people today and in this church. May it, may it be a characteristic of this church that your power resides among them. Your power upon your people for your glory, God, we pray. Amen.